Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. It can't be too much longer until we actually finish this Gospel. There's only two more chapters after this one. But the fact is, this is a long chapter, 71 verses in Luke chapter 22. And this morning we're going to be looking at the question, who does God regard as the greatest? Isn't that an interesting question? Would you like to know the answer? Who does God regard as the greatest? Well, we're going to look into that today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how holy is your word and how privileged we are to have it and to be able to open it week by week and look into its riches. And Lord, we pray this would not be a vain exercise, that this would be fruitful to our souls. Speak to us, Lord. Show us how to be great in your kingdom. Show us who you regard to be the greatest, and let us pursue that with all our might. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, And those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Just about a month ago, former heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali died. And one of the things that Ali was famous for was his statement I am the greatest. He used to like to say that a lot. And whenever the TV cameras were put upon Muhammad Ali, he would say, I am the greatest. Well, one day he was on a flight, and the stewardess came up to him and said, Mr. Ali, you need to buckle your seatbelts. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelts. And the stewardess said, Superman didn't need an airplane either. (laughs) And I think that put him in his place real quick. (laughs) I I think we all understand that to have an exalted ego is really not a Christian virtue and a Christian grace. It's actually inconsistent with the Christian faith. Look at verse 24. It says, There arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Now, when they were arguing with each other and disputing over who is the greatest, in whose eyes were they thinking about greatness? Yeah, man's eyes. Their own eyes. That's who they were thinking about. But Jesus goes on to correct them and to tell them how they could be great in God's eyes. They were all arguing about who's the greatest among us in our eyes. And Jesus says, you've got the wrong perspective. You're thinking about who man regards to be the greatest. You need to start thinking about who God regards to be the greatest. 
Whose opinion do you want? Do you want the opinion of men? Or do you want the opinion of God? If we're to distill Jesus' answer down, we would say, the greatest person in God's eyes is the greatest servant of other people. That's the greatest person. Now, let's look at the context here. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we refer to that as the Last Supper. The very first celebration of communion. And this is a holy meal, isn't it? Sacred meal in which we're supposed to remember Christ. And in that meal, Jesus is even saying, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. It's the blood of the new covenant. So Jesus is talking to them in this sacred meal about his impending sufferings, his death, his body given for them, his blood given for them. And it doesn't even seem to phase them because right after that, they start arguing about who's the greatest person. It has no moral influence on their lives. And then right after he institutes the Lord's Supper, he starts to tell them that one of you here is going to betray me. It would have been better for that person never to have been born, but one of you right here sitting at this table, one of you is going to betray me over to death. You would think that this would sober them up and that it would start thinking about Christ and they might actually start empathizing with the Lord and try to encourage him. I mean, he's about to enter into the most agonizing time of his life. I'm sure that they could start to see that he was under a lot of stress. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is going to happen in just a few minutes or a few hours from this time? He says, my soul is in agony to the point of death. Jesus was starting to bear the stress of what it would mean to become sin and bear sin on behalf of the world. So do they enter into his sufferings and do they start supporting him? Are they encouraging him? Are they sympathizing with him? No. All they can think about is themselves and which one of them happens to be the greatest of the 12. Right? It's actually crazy. It's almost unthinkable when you think about it. Unbelievable that they could have that on their minds, but then I started to think about myself and how carnal I can be sometimes and I, how I can be so self-centered when I ought to be other-centered and God-centered. It's embarrassing to think about these guys. You think that Jesus would say, um, guys, you're all fired. I'm going out and finding 12 more guys right before I go to the cross because you're not, you're not world changers. I'm sorry to tell you here, <laughs> but they're just like us, right? These guys are just like us. Now, it's important that we also understand that this isn't the first time they argued about who is the greatest. It's at least the third time. They have the very same argument in the Bible. And maybe more times that aren't recorded in the Bible. But at least three times they've had this very same argument. Let me show you that. Go to Mark chapter 9. We'll just read through these passages so you can see it. Mark 9, verse 33. The Bible here says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Okay, flip over to the very next chapter, Mark chapter 10, and look at verse 41. 
Mark 10, 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus had to continually correct his disciples, not once, not twice, at least three different times. They they come up with the same competitive ambitious spirit where they're striving with each other, wanting to be regarded as the top dog, the best disciple, the one closest to Jesus. And Jesus has to constantly correct them. You've got it all backwards. The greatest one is the greatest servant. He's the slave of all. And if you want to be the greatest, then go down and become the servant of everybody else. And then maybe you can be regarded as the greatest. Now, there are three questions that I want to seek to answer from our text this morning. Number one, who does the world regard as the greatest? Number two, who does God regard as the greatest? And then number three, how does Jesus encourage his disciples to humble service? And those questions are answered in our text. First of all, who does the world regard as the greatest? Look at verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Now, here he he uses the word Gentiles. That should tip us off. That should tip us off that here Jesus is talking about the way the world exercises authority and the way the world estimates greatness. He talks about the kings of the Gentiles. This isn't God's kingdom. This is the worldly system. This is the Satan's kingdom, right? The Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that Satan rules over this kingdom, that he has a kingdom and he's the king of that kingdom. God has given him certain permission to exercise authority. The Bible says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so there are are these two opposing kingdoms. Satan has his. And Jesus is pointing to Satan's kingdom in verse 25. And Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand, how does the world estimate greatness? Well, they estimate those who are great as kings and those who exercise authority over others. So the people in the world, okay, truly great person, that's going to be a king or a queen or an emperor or a pharaoh or a dictator or a president, or maybe a five-star general. It's somebody who can snap his fingers, give a command, and know that it's instantly going to be obeyed because he has that power and he's got that authority. That's worldly greatness. It's the person at the top who can dictate to all the people under him of what he wants them to do, and he knows it's going to happen. Worldly greatness. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over exercise dominion and power and authority. They manipulate those underneath them to get their own will done through them. They lord it over people. And those who have authority over them are called 
benefactors. Now, a benefactor is somebody who confers a benefit on somebody else. Okay? So, these people of worldly greatness with worldly authority are called by others benefactors. You see, the president or the dictator or the emperor, he expects that the people under his authority are going to refer to him as someone who's benefiting them, conferring benefits upon them. But you know, it's rarely that way, isn't it? Usually, the person on the top is not known for giving to those underneath him, but taking from them. I mean, just think about, think about the mafia for a minute. You got Al Capone in the 30s in Chicago. Was he known for how well he gave to all those people that were underneath him and serving him? He was at the top, and he was making millions and millions of dollars, living high on the hog, and the people under him were doing his dirty work for him and often getting killed in the process. Think about the cults. How did the cults work? Jim Jones. Do you know anything about Jim Jones, folks? Jim Jones... Um, was known for going to bed with the women in his, in his church. The men couldn't stop him because he was the kingpin of the organization. He was known for taking drugs. That's why he wore the, the dark glasses all the time. So he constantly had wealth. He had drugs. He had alcohol. He had all the women within his church. He was exalting himself and living high on the hog while the people underneath him had very little to nothing. What about David Koresh? Do you remember him in Waco, Texas? A cult leader there. Uh, David Koresh also told his congregation that God told him that he was supposed to go to bed with the women within that compound. And that all of the other men were supposed to be celibate. So he was supposed to take their wives for himself even if they were underage girls or married women, they were all his. God had given them to him, and so he was supposed to have those women. They were supposed to give up their wives to David Koresh. Um, what about the Reverend Sun Young Moon? In the late 80s, it was reported that he was worth about $990 million. Incredibly, incredibly wealthy. But the people that served under him had nothing. They were expected to give up all their worldly goods and go out and sell peanuts and flowers and work sometimes 20 hours a day getting very little sleep in order to benefit the organization, to benefit the religion. Well, who's, who's, who's benefiting from all of that? Is it those people down there, the, the volunteers? It's Reverend Sun Young Moon becoming filthy rich and having these yachts and these personal vacations and have, owning vast franchises and lands. And it was incredible. See, that's worldly greatness right there. Is that how Jesus lived? Did Jesus live in a palace while he forced all the people underneath him to do this and do that and to serve him? Jesus lived just like everybody else. So benefactors, those who are expected to confer benefits on other people. A benefactor is someone who takes the credit for all the good that happens within his little kingdom. So who's great in Satan's kingdom? Those people that claw themselves to the top. People who are able to use threat and force and violence and manipulation to get what they want out of other people. 
Those who are at the top in Satan's kingdom are marked by self-will, self-promotion, self-advancement, self-glorying, and personal ambition. Now, who does God regard as the greatest? We've seen who the world regards as the greatest, but who does God regard as the greatest? Look at verse 26. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. How does Jesus begin verse 26? What word does he use? But. That means you've got a contrast coming up. This is the way the world regards greatness, verse 25. But this is the way God regards greatness, verse 26. He says, it is not this way with you. In other words, in his kingdom, people are not to be regarded as great the same way that the world regards people as great. People in his kingdom are not to exercise authority the same way people in the world exercise authority. Authority in the church is exercised in exactly the opposite way that authority in the world is exercised. And so greatness in God's kingdom is determined not by how many people you can manipulate to serve you, but by how many people you actually serve. Greatness is determined not by how much you can take from people, but by how much you can give to them. Not by how much you can exalt yourself, but how much you can empty yourself. Not by self-glorying, but how much glory you can give to God. Not by personal ambition, but by ambition to honor God. Not through self-will, but by seeking to do God's will. You see, it's exactly the opposite of the kingdom of the world. Satan's kingdom is is topsy-turvy, upside down compared to God's kingdom. They're opposites in every regard. Now, Jesus says in verse 26, that the one regarded as the greatest in his kingdom must become like the youngest. How much authority does the youngest person in a family have? Let's say you've got 17-year-old Tommy, 12-year-old Susie, and 2-year-old Billy. How much authority does Billy have? None. <laughs> yeah, maybe he's got, he maybe he can boss the dog around or something, but that's about it. <laughs> Everybody else, he's, he's the lowest person on that totem pole in the pecking order. He's at the bottom. He, so Jesus says, the one who wants to be regarded as the greatest, lower yourself. Go down. Don't boss people around. Don't bark out orders. Don't expect everyone to come serve you. You need to lower yourself and become like the youngest person in the family. And then he says, and the leader must become like the servant. Now, what I find interesting is the way Jesus keeps repeating that word servant or serve. Look at it with me. Verse 26. He says, among you, you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Over and over, he's emphasizing that word. True greatness is through service. It's through becoming a servant. It's not clawing yourself to the top. It's voluntarily lowering yourself to the bottom. That's who God regards as the greatest. So God measures greatness 
as to how quickly and cheerfully we serve other people. In God's kingdom, the leader has to be a servant. No person should have authority in the church who is not a servant of other people. If you've got a pastor who is not a servant to other people, he needs to go. (laughs) He should not be a, a leader in a church. You can't have someone who exercises authority who's not willing to be under authority. And you can't have a person who is leading other people who is not a servant to other people. If you've got that, you've got an unhealthy church that's headed for disaster. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Luke 12 because Jesus taught us already these very same principles. Look at Luke 12, verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Okay, so here Jesus is talking about a steward. Now do you understand what that means, what a steward is? That was a servant. He's talking about a servant, but a servant who had authority to do something for the master. He was put in charge of all of the other servants, but that that authority came with a responsibility too, didn't it? What was he supposed to be doing? What was this servant supposed to be doing? Yeah, and what was that? What was the specifics here? By doing what? By giving them their rations, it says here, at the proper time. In other words, he was responsible to make sure they were fed, that they had the food that they needed. This was the servant in charge of doling out the food. Now, in in God's kingdom, there are certain servants whom God has called to be stewards, and their job is to feed the flock, to feed the sheep. We call these pastors. Pastors are responsible to make sure that God's people are fed True spiritual food, the Word of God. Now, he says here, who then is the faithful and sensible steward? Who's the faithful steward? Who's the faithful pastor? Verse 44 says, Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So, if you've got a pastor who is faithfully feeding the flock week after week, spending time studying, spending time giving them the true spiritual food, God says, he's going to put him in charge of all his possessions. That's a great outcome. But notice verse 45. And it starts with that word, but again. Here's a contrast. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. You've got two different stewards pictured here. A faithful steward. He's put in charge of all the master's possessions. Why? Because he faithfully served the flock. Then you've got another steward. What does he do? He beats them. Now, why would he be beating the slaves? What do you think that's all about? It says that he's eating and drinking and getting drunk. Whack! Get me my Budweiser. Whack! Get me some more 
<laughs> chicken and dumplings or whatever. You know what I mean? Anyway, he, he's beating them because he's wanting them to serve him. So you've got two different kinds of stewards. One is a faithful steward. He serves people. You've got this unfaithful steward, and he exercises authority so that they serve him. Those are the Sun Young Moons. Those are the David Koresh's. Those are the Jim Jones. And those are even ungodly pastors within the, faith, within the Christian church. The guys flying their personal jets who are multimillionaires, who are applauded wherever they go and never serve anybody. Jesus said the leader's got to become like the servant. And then he says, who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? We're back now in Luke 22. Verse 27, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? What would they have said to this question? Who's greater, guys? The one reclining at the table or the one who's serving? Yeah, that's what they would say. That's what they all thought. Of course, it's the guy who's who's reclining because everybody else is bringing him his meal and everyone's bringing his drink and they're all washing his feet and, you know, doting on him. But then Jesus throws a monkey wrench in their understanding because he says, well, wait a minute. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, what's he getting at? See, the disciples knew that Jesus was great. There was no getting around that. In fact, John 1.14, it says, We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These disciples had seen Jesus transfigured, where his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light, and his true nature was able to to shine through and become evident. Usually it was concealed in this veil of flesh, but here his true nature was revealed to his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And they saw his greatness when they saw him heal sick people and walk on water and multiply fishes and loaves and heal lepers and forgive sins um, and raise the dead. And so they knew he was great, but he wasn't the one reclining at the table. He was the one who serves. See, Jesus' whole life was a life of service. Think about his life. It's hard for me to think of anything he ever did that was just for himself. I mean, read the whole Gospels, all four of the Gospels. He came into this world not for himself. He came into this world for us. Lost, condemned sinners headed for an eternal in, eternity in hell. He came to save us, to seek and save the lost. He lived a perfect, righteous life, not for himself, but for us. He laid down his life on the cross, not for himself, but for us. Then he rose from the dead, not for himself, but for us. Everything he did was for the glory of his Father and the good of sinners. He lived his whole life as a life of service. He was employed in doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He didn't go around exalting himself and promoting himself and advancing himself and glorifying himself. He lived 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for God's glory and the good of other people. He was the perfect example of a servant. And notice that little phrase at the very end here, but I am among you as the one who serves. What did he mean by that? Do you remember something that was going on that very night where he was demonstrating his servant's heart for them? 
Yeah. John 13 says that it was during the supper that he rose, girded himself about with a towel, took a basin of water, and went to each disciple and washed that disciple's feet. Now we think, well, why in the world would anybody do that? Well, that's because we don't live in the same kind of culture that they did. They wore sandals, and the roads are dusty. They didn't have paved streets, and they didn't have enclosed shoes. So wherever they finally landed at the end of the day, their feet are filthy. And usually it was the job of the lowest slave of that household to come and wash all the feet of the people entering the home. Well, none of the disciples wanted that job, so none of their feet got washed that day. So Jesus said, I'll do it. And he got up, and one by one, he washed his disciples' feet. He says, I am among you as the one who serves. I am among you. None of you wanted to take that lowly position. All of you are arguing about who's the greatest. You've got everything upside down and backwards, disciples. How long do I have to teach you about this lesson? This is the third time now. When are you going to get this? It must be what he's thinking. Oh, faithless and unbelieving generation. You know how often he just gets kind of frustrated. When are you guys going to get this? Now, let's make some application to all of this. Folks, what we're talking about this morning, this is the Christian life. It's a life of servanthood. That's it. Every single Christian is to live a life of servanthood. Every single one. Nobody is exempt from this at all. It's not us commanding hundreds of people underneath us from the top. That's not the life of the Christian. It's lifting others up by going underneath them and supporting them. It's stooping under other people. When I thought about all of this, I thought about that famous prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Now though that is a good prayer. I don't know what you feel about St. Francis of Assisi, but that is a great prayer because it shows the heart of a servant. You see, a servant is a person who is a selfless person. Oftentimes we think about humility and we think, well, humility is just thinking less of myself. But that's not it. Humility is thinking of yourself less. It's to be selfless. It's to be so preoccupied with God and other people that you're not thinking about your own self. Now that's hard for us, isn't it? Because we're born with a corrupt, sinful nature and the core of our sinful nature is to be self-centered and to be selfish. That's why the kingdoms of the world think that greatness is getting people to serve you. Right? Because it's a self-centered, self-exalting, selfish way of of living. That's how the mafia works. That's how the cults work. That's how the kingdoms of the world work. That's not the way the kingdom of Jesus works. It's a selfless way of serving. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2 for just a moment. Because here in Philippians 2, I believe Paul gives us a really good definition of 
what true humility is. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, there's our word humility, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's humility. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Humility is what? It's thinking of others as more important than yourself. That's humility. It's not just considering your needs, it's considering others' needs. It's to be others-focused. Have you heard the acronym, acronym JOY, J-O-Y? Jesus, others, you? That's humility. Jesus comes first, others come second. Remember the old movie Brian song and that expression, I am third? God comes first, others come second, I come last. That's the Christian life. That's a humble person. I wonder if you have ever thought about, you know, maybe at a time when you were just feeling bad and you're throwing a little pity party. We all do that from time to time, I think. <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, nobody ever comes to see me. Well, maybe the question we should have on our lips is, um, am I going to see somebody else? Nobody ever calls me. Well, are you calling somebody else? Nobody ever invites me over for dinner or invites me out for coffee or invites me out to lunch. Well, are you doing those things for others? Nobody ever remembers me. Well, are you remembering others? You see, if we can just get out of this me-centered focus, just get out of that, break free of that, and really try to focus our lives on other people and for God, we're going to find joy. Joy comes from Jesus, others, and you. Sometimes I wonder when people, you know, say, I, I, I just chose a new church. I'm going to a new church now. And, and I'll ask them, well, why did you church, choose that particular church? Well, they've got an awesome music program. They've got great things going on for the kids and the nursery's great. Um, they've got a, a great new attractive facility with lots of parking. The preacher's good. He's right on. That's why we're going to go there. But did you notice their answer? It's all about them. It's all about them. That's actually kind of an immature response. You know what the mature response is of why you choose the church you go to? Because I saw that I could, I could get involved serving people there. There's needs there that I can, I can meet. There's opportunities for me to give my life away there and to pour my life out. That, that's a mature response of why you would choose one church over another. Folks, are you a servant? Probably the where the rubber meets the road is in our own homes, right? That's where people know us best, and they know whether we serve or whether we don't, <laughs> whether we just expect everybody else to serve us all the time or whether we're laying our lives down. Are you willingly and cheerfully doing the dishes after dinner? Are you taking out the trash? <laughs> Are you 
cheerfully doing chores around the house that need to be done or helping other people that just aren't able to do it. See, and the word cheerfully is important there, isn't it? Because you can do it with a bad attitude, and, and that's not being a servant. A servant is having a good, cheerful, positive spirit to serve other people and help them. Let's move on to our third question. How does Jesus encourage his disciples to humble service? We'll go back to Luke 22, and we're going to read those last three verses of our text. Verse 28 to 30. Jesus says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now verse 28 blows my mind. (laughs) You are those who have stood by me in my trials. He's just told them that he's going to die, someone's going to betray him, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. You know what it shows me? It shows Jesus is so quick to be willing to overlook their sins and their foibles and their mistakes, and he's so eager to praise them for the smallest little thing that they do right. I think this is a picture of Judgment Day. When, when true believers stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, you know, we're going to think, did I do anything for the Lord? And he's going to play your life back, and he's going to point out all the little things you ever did that were for his sake giving a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord to somebody else. Little things that you'd totally forgotten, that had no consequence to you, but the Lord's going to point them out and he's, he's going to serve us. In fact, back in Luke chapter 12, it says that when the master comes, he's going to gird up his loins and he's going to serve the servants who stayed up all night waiting for him. Even in heaven, Jesus is going to serve us. Can you believe that? He's a servant forever. <laughs> It blows my mind. You guys, you've stood by me in my trials. He's encouraging them. He's praising them for the least of the things that they'd ever done for him. And then he goes on to say, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. How does he encourage them to humble service? He gives them lavish promises. The promise that just as God gave him a kingdom, well, since they are united to him in this life, in the life to come, they're also going to be united to him in that kingdom that he inherits. They're going to sit down with Jesus at his table in his kingdom and fellowship with him. Not only that, but they're going to sit on thrones royalty, and they are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. No, think about this. They're going to sit on thrones, and they're going to exercise judgment. Now, this should have really encouraged them, because Jesus is telling them, give away your rights, lower yourself, forget about yourself, serve other people. And they're thinking, well, Lord, If I do that, I'm not going to have anything. And Jesus is saying, no, you're wrong. You're going to have everything. It's just delayed gratification. In the age to come, God is going to lift you up. You don't have to lift up yourself right now. You can lower yourself because in the coming age, he's going to lift you up. He's going to sit you at his table. He's going to sit you on thrones. He's going to give you judgment. 
It reminds me of Psalm 75. I'm going to show you this. Psalm 75, verses 5 and 6. Actually, it's 6 and 7. Psalm 75, 6 and 7. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. What's he saying there? Exaltation doesn't come from the east or the west or the desert. Where does it come from? It comes from God. He puts down one and he exalts another. And if you are trying to exalt yourself, promote yourself, advance yourself, claw your way to the top, you're fighting against God. God is the one who puts down one and exalts another. What he's saying here is you can leave it to God if you will humble yourself in this life for him to exalt you in the next. And wouldn't that be much better than to have a few fleeting years of, of greatness in this world and then have an eternity of humility? Back in our, our text in Philippians 2, we stopped at verse 5, but let's just keep reading. There in Philippians 2, Paul says you need to have humility of mind where you regard others as more important than yourself, and you need to not look on your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now look at this, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of what? A bondservant, just like us, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he, what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was willing to voluntarily stoop low. Does that mean he's always going to be low? No. <laughs> For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's Paul's point? He's saying, look at Jesus. He emptied himself. He humbled himself and became a bondservant. What's the result of all that? God highly exalted him and gave him the greatest name in the universe. Why is he telling us all that? Because we are to follow in Jesus' example. We are to humble ourselves. We're to empty ourselves. We're to become servants. And what will God do if we do that? He's going to exalt us in the life to come. Over in 1 Peter 5, First Peter 5, let me read this to you. Um, verse 6. He says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. It's not that we will never be exalted. It's just that we're willing to have our exaltation in the future. We're willing to put that off. We're willing to humble ourselves and lower ourselves and serve others now and let God in His timing exalt us. And he will. He promises to do that. Oh my. 
So who does the world regard as the greatest? Kings. Those who lord it over others. Those who exercise authority over others. You know, I think in heaven we're going to be surprised at the greatest people there. I don't think it's going to be the famous televangelists who flew around in their billion-dollar jets or whatever they are and were multimillionaires and lived in palaces. I think it's going to be the unknown people. We've never heard of them. People living in huts in far-off countries, missionaries who have given their lives away to bring the gospel to people. Poor pastors who have given everything they have to be faithful to small little flocks. Nobody's ever heard of their names before. It's, 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 it's not the big shots. It's, the, it's, it's people like you can be one of them. You can be great in God's kingdom, whoever you are, by humbling yourself right now and being a servant, cheerfully going about serving other people, doing things that the world thinks are insignificant, but God prizes. And God, <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a verse in the book of Malachi which says that God has a book of remembrance and he's writing down all the things that he's seeing. Do you know that? The little acts of kindness and service that you show to other people, God's got them all written down in a book and God's going to open that book and display before everybody one day those things that you did. He's not unjust to forget about your work of kindness. He's not unjust to do that. He's going to reward you. You need to believe that. You need to have faith that the Word of God is true and that we don't live for this life. We live for the life to come. We have eternity stamped on our eyeballs, right? So I want, just want to challenge you this week. Humble yourself and become a servant. God first, others second, you third. Think about this about that this week. I mean, you're going to have all kinds of opportunities that are going to come up for you to be self-centered and selfish and to think only about yourself. I pray that Jesus' words will come back to you this week. The greatest must become as the servant. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us. Lord, It is. we confess to you how difficult it is just to be humble servants. It's so difficult because of our, our sinful nature. But we know that your Holy Spirit can do this work in us. We pray for a deepening of servanthood and humility in each person's life. Bring this back to our remembrance this week, Lord. Help us to cast ourselves upon you for the strength we need and the power we need to serve other people. In Jesus' name, amen.